Thank you very much. Um, this is a wonderful session, I think, to end with because we're skipping about 60, 70 years between one paper and the next, but I mean, hopefully we'll encompass the whole range um, of, of all sorts of things, but or at least one of which is chronology. Um, as you'll see from, from the next paper, which will be given by uh, Shamoun Zamir, who is Associate Professor of Literature and Visual Studies at New York University in Abu Dhabi. He's also the founder and director of ACASA, an archive and center for photography at NYU Abu Dhabi, which was established in 2015 and focuses on the photographic traditions of the Middle East and North Africa. Although he won't be discussing the challenges of setting up a new photographic archive today, and presumably also questions of labeling and digitization and all that, um, but he has promised me that he would be happy to discuss the initiative if anyone would like to find out more informally, um, perhaps, uh, or if it comes up formally in, in discussion. But in addition to this project, Shamoon has also written or edited a number of books, including Dark Voices, W.E.B. Dubois and American Thought, the Gift of the Face, Portraiture and Time in Edward S. Curtis's The North American Indian, and a forthcoming edited volume on The Family of Man. He's also completing a separate book-length study of The Family of Man exhibition and continues to work on other projects related to photography from the Middle East. His talk today is entitled Archive Exhibition Book, The Family of Man Reconstituted. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I realize that all the speakers before me have been very kind in thanking the uh, organizers. I'd like to actually offer a little criticism. I don't know how many of you have noticed on the way in from the main quad into the blue ball quad, there's a sign saying archive and brew house. <laughs> it seems to me that was a missed opportunity. Um, so, um, if you're looking for archive seven, we're actually in the brew house, more or less right now. It used to be a brew house. Sadly, it's now an archive. OK. Um, so um, in talking about the family of man, I had this horrible feeling that in some sense I should begin with a kind of justification or a confession. Uh, because I suspect that those of you who are in any way familiar with the family of man may have already wondered or may already be asking yourselves, why write on the family of man yet again? Um, it's something that I'm going to try and explain. Um, why edit another book on the family of man? Why write another uh, monograph on the family of man? The family of man was the most successful photographic exhibition in history. And it is perhaps the most successful exhibition of all time. It opened in late January in 1955 at the Museum of Modern Art uh, in New York. It ran there for approximately six, uh, three months and it was seen by approximately 270,000 uh, 270, uh, visitors. It is, in fact, the second most successful exhibition at MoMA. Uh, interestingly, uh, exhibition of Italian masters in the 1930s got more people. Uh, there's hope yet. Uh, <laughs> um, it then toured a number of American cities, and then it traveled all over the world. According to MoMA's website, it traveled to approximately 35 countries. According to current research, I would argue it probably traveled to about 40. And it went to several cities in some of the countries it visited. By the end of its tour, from 1955 to 1962 approximately, there were a couple of other mini tours after that, somewhere between 9 to 10 million people around the world had seen this exhibition. In Jakarta, in Tokyo, in Paris, in Johannesburg, in Kyoto, in Delhi, in Ahmedabad, in Bombay, you name it. It's an extraordinary phenomenon. 
Not surprisingly then, um, The Family of Man has attracted a great deal of critical attention. Many articles, many book chapters, um, some edited volumes, and one previous monograph by Eric Sandin, the, the key scholarly work uh, on this uh, project. And in most histories of photography, and in discussions of aesthetics and politics in photography, it is by uh, a long measure, I would have thought, one of the most consistent points of reference in discussions. And I should add, not always, in fact, mostly not in a good way. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority opinion, uh, and there are some notable exceptions to this, but the majority opinion is that the family of man marked the triumph of a politically irrelevant photography. It was seen as, and it continues to be seen as, a paean to a sentimental humanism drained of historical specificity and as such ideally suited to the propaganda needs of the US government in the Cold War era that followed the Second World War. I should point out that the international tour of the exhibition was sponsored by, um, with great enthusiasm, the United States Information Agency, the key organ of the um, propaganda machine of uh, uh, the United States in the Cold War. Um, so if you don't know, um, you're seeing two installation shots uh, from the Museum of Modern Art. It was a very unusually laid out exhibition. Um, it was a radical innovation at the Museum of Modern Art. There had been a couple of exhibitions previously that had experimented with form, also by Edward Steichen, who had um, pioneered this one. Um, and if you don't know much about the exhibition, the family of man moves through the cycle, uh, the, the stages of the cycle of life, lovers, marriage, birth, childhood, uh, education, uh, work, play, entertainment, death, and that's the way the exhibition has been described. Um, it's actually, in my view, entirely inaccurate because that's only the first half of the exhibition. The rest of the exhibition is very different. Uh, and I'm going to try and address that second half uh, uh, in some point I'm going to say. In the time available, um, I mean, needless to say, you, um, what I'm going to say about the family man tries to disagree with the majority opinion. Um, however, in the time that is available, it's not really possible for me to present the full scope and detail of the argument that I want to make. So I'm just going to uh, give you a kind of headline summary of my basic argument, and I'm happy to answer questions in more detail uh, later. Um, and I'm going to lead up to the two key questions or issues that have most driven my engagement with the family of man, and try and at least suggest uh, why archival sources have been important to pursuing those questions and how that pursuit might in some ways lead us to the questions of the place of photography. So where some people have argued that the family of man is a flight from history, my argument is actually there's quite a lot of history in the family of man. Where the family of man has been criticized as a retreat into the private sphere of the family, I would actually propose that the exhibit is a meticulously constructed argument urging its audience to move from the private sphere into the public sphere of social engagement. What Hannah Arendt, only a few years after the opening of this exhibition, wrote about as the Via Activa. And where the family of man has been seen as essentially a monument to American ideology, I would try and demonstrate that it's, what it really tried to do was to fashion a model of global citizenship, most radically for its American audience, based on the ideals of the newly created United Nations. And lastly, though by no means uh, of least importance, I believe that the family of man did cultural work across the globe 
in the aftermath of the Second World War that cannot simply be described or explained by reference to the institutions and histories of Cold War cultural propaganda. So the issue of reception is, uh, in fact, one of the key areas or issues that has, been that has driven much of my own thinking about this exhibition. And this is an obvious question. What, after all, did 10 million people think they were doing by going to this exhibition? What did they experience? What did they think about it? What did they get out of this exhibition at that time? Um, it's quite shocking to me that that question has hardly ever been asked by most of the people who write on the family of man. In, dis and, um, in dismissing the family of man as Cold War propaganda, or even as a middle-brow seduction aimed at a populist taste, I, seem, I, I would argue that they're missing something fundamental in terms of the cultural work that this exhibition must have done. Answering that question, I would have to admit, is not very easy, because that's where the archives actually pretty much fail us, except in a couple of instances. Um, we have many reviews, we have um, uh, many journalistic articles, but they tend largely to reproduce what the press releases of MoMA gave them. Journalists are lazy, um, they tend to just regurgitate the same stuff. It's very hard to find out what audiences thought, but there's an 89-page document in, um, in the archives which was commissioned in Munich in 1956, uh, which gives an extraordinarily meticulous account of which pictures people like, why they liked them, what they thought about them. Uh, 700 interviews were conducted, half of them in the exhibition, half of them in people's homes. Um, I'm not going to have much time to talk about that, but that's the kind of one of the kind of clincher um, texts that we have. The second aspect of the family of man that has motivated my work, and this is perhaps most of all uh, the most important thing uh, for me, is that almost everyone who writes about the family of man doesn't write about it at all. Uh, so what I mean by that is, apart from the early reviewers, almost everyone who has written in a scholarly or academic way about the family of man has not seen the family of man. They have seen the book of the family of man. And the book was an afterthought. It is a two-dimensional, reorganized uh, photo collection which departs from the exhibition in very, very significant ways. Um, that, for me, creates an enormous problem because it both doesn't give us access to what actually happened in MoMA and it doesn't give us access to the way the uh, exhibition was reimagined at various venues around the world. Um, I'm going to just show you a few things. So this is the floor plan of the MoMA exhibition. Uh, this was not the official floor plan. This was published in Popular Photography. It took up the whole of the second floor of the MoMA, uh, uh, the old MoMA, before it was reconfigured. Um, this is a map of all the countries and cities uh, that the exhibition um, has been at. Um, and I'm going to show you some um, installation slashes, just give you a flavor of what, the, what it meant physically to be inside MoMA. It wasn't a very conventional looking photographic exhibition. It wasn't a line of framed photographs on the wall. It was an environment rather than... Um, and it was deeply influenced by Bauhaus design. Um, this is an image I'll return to a bit later. So what you're seeing in the circular form is a series of pictures of kids playing Ring Around the Rosie around the world. 
um, and these are pictures that have been stuck at 90 degrees to a gigantic picture of the United Nations. So this is the um, um, document from Munich that I was talking about. So that's what happens to it when it turns into a book. Um, some, just some page spreads so you can give an idea. It has to be said, not only was the exhibition the most successful exhibition of all time, the book is the most successful photo book of all time. It sold something like six million copies. It's never been out of print in 60 years. Um, it's just been reissued in the hardback in the 60th anniversary edition. Um, and it's remained completely unchanged since um, the day it was published. So by contrast with the book, which was designed by the Italian designer Leo Leone, a fantastic book designer um, and a children's book writer, um, the book was an afterthought. But by contrast with that, Steichen spent an enormous amount of time designing the exhibition down to its last very meticulous um, minor details. After he and his assistant Wayne Miller had uh, whittled down something like four to six million photographs that they looked through, down to 10,000. They rented an apartment over a striptease joint on 53rd Street and moved everything into there and then spent over a year designing and redesigning and redesigning the exhibition down to every single meticulous hang, working with a photo uh, architect, Paul Rudolph, a great architect. And this is, you're looking at the model designed by Paul Rudolph at one stage of it. And you can see how carefully um, Steichen is working with um, human-sized issues. Um, sometimes Steichen slept there, sometimes he worked throughout the night. Um, so, you know, in the histories of photography, very often you have uh, the mythical story, it's not actually mythical, but it's a moving story of Robert Frank taking a year and a half to design the Americans just a few years after this. Frank actually worked with Steichen on this exhibition. Uh, Steichen took exactly the same time and exactly the same level of care, and I'm interested in that problem uh, uh, or this fact. So at the heart of my project is an attempt to go back into the archives and try and use the archival resources to reconstruct. Um, I, re I dropped the word reconstituted, unfortunately, because it sounds like reconstituted rice or pancakes or something. Uh, uh, reconstruct, reimagine the exhibition, if you like, um, especially during its three months at MoMA, where we know that what we are looking at is exactly what Steichen and his team designed. Once it moved out of MoMA, at every venue, there was an enormous leeway in terms of what the physical environment of the chosen venue was, who was in charge of the USIA, and things changed, small changes were made, rehangs were done, um, and it's very hard to get information on that material, actually. So I want to make another bold claim, although I, can, I feel I can substantiate this. Despite the fact that so much has been written on the family of man, there isn't a single detailed reading of a photographic sequence or of a photographic room or of the relationship of one room to another room in the entire exhibition. Not one. Eric Sandin, who's written a fantastic book, has a 200-page book, and there's a three-page description of the exhibition in it. And that's it. That's, that's the extent of the close reading. So although the, um, the death of art history has been celebrated to some extent. I'm something of an old fart, and I've gone back to close reading. Um, I want to look at this thing very, very carefully. Um, um, so in doing all of this, I'll come back to the archive theme. Archives have been very, very important to me. 
The main archive for the family of man is the Museum of Modern Art, which has an enormous archive related to the family of man. They basically didn't throw anything out as far as I can see. Every memo, every scrap of paper, every document, architectural floor plan, hundreds of installation photographs, all the correspondence with the government agencies, with the Ford Foundation, internal memos, private letters to photographers, and really interesting letters from the public about the exhibition have all been uh, maintained very carefully um, and have given me many months of pleasure. Um, um, we talk a lot about the kind of institutional and power plays and ideologies of archives, but sometimes forget how just how much fun they are. When you're, it's like childlike fun when you're actually in them. Um, there's also a substantial amount of material in the United States government archives in Maryland and Washington, D.C., relating to the United States Information Agency. Um, these are the two main traditional archives that are relevant to the family of man. But there's another archive that has also been very important to me uh, in my work, and that is um, this place. This is the castle called Clairvaux Castle in Luxembourg, where the family of man in its European version is now permanently housed as an ongoing permanent exhibition. So this is actually an exhibition that is a kind of archive of an archive. It's an archive of the original exhibition. Um, and anyone can go visit, and I recommend it, because it's a very rare thing to have a major historically important exhibition permanently housed in almost its original form um, in this place. The floor plan, of course, is very different. It's on two floors. It's in this kind of medieval building, um, a building that was destroyed in the, in the Battle of the Bulge, but then rebuilt exactly. Um, and you can see the difference. MoMA on the left-hand side, Clairvaux on the right-hand side. Um, then there's Clairvaux, and then there's Clairvaux. So this is the old Clairvaux in 1994. Then they rehung it. So what you're looking at on the right is a re-archiving of an archiving of the original exhibition, um, which is also quite interesting. Uh, I won't dwell on this very much, but I recommend a tour if you can ever manage it. Uh, there's a reason why it's in Clairvaux, which I can also explain later. Um, the last thing I would say about the archive, and before I leave the issue of the archive, is also that the family of man was itself an archive. Because in order to construct it as an exhibition, they went through four to six million photographs, many of them drawn from the archives of magazines like Life magazine, Popular magazine, MoMA's archives, photographers' archives. So there was actually a major bit of archival research that went into reimagining what was in the archives as a new kind of document which addressed um, global citizenship, common humanity, whatever you want to call it. Um, so in terms of the senses of place then, there are obvious ways in which looking at the family of man is important for the history of photography. Um, for one thing, it was a mobile photographic uh, phenomenon that was literally all over the place across the world. It reimagined itself and reconstituted itself in different parts of the world, in different cultural contexts, in different moments of historical specificity, uh, specificity with an audience coming to it with very different visual regimes. Um, I cannot imagine that the visual regime in Tokyo was the same as it was in Bombay at that time. They're different cultures, etc. Um, then there's also the issue of where did the photographs come from? They had places. Not only did they come from all over the world, 
geographically, but they also came from many different kinds of publications that were mobile in that sense. Um, um, but then there's a more esoteric, or if you like, um, tangential notion of place which actually interests me in relation to the family of man, which is that it also involves a consideration of the placing of photographs, quite literally where you put a photograph on a wall, how big you make it, and what relationship you build with the photographs that surround it, and also with the next room, and the room after, and the room before, and so on. So that the exhibition space for me is a place for photography, and it's a place which is most important to me because it places the viewer in an interesting way. At the heart of Steichen's project was a replacing of photography in order to replace or reposition the viewer in a totally untraditional way, to involve them in what Frederick Tanner uh, has rightly called the democratic surround, to create this strange environment in which they were engaged in a new way of thinking and making choices about photography. So um, I'm going to quickly, um, these are two further examples from Clairvo on the right and uh, MoMA on the left. Old Clairvo, new Clairvo, same sequence. I'm going to just take a few minutes to look at one particular photographic sequence in The Family of Man and try and indicate why, for me at least, it's been really important to just go back and look in detail. After the life cycle was over, the exhibition moved into what I would consider social and public space. Uh, issues of famine, inhumanity, social protest, uh, legal systems, public debate, the United Nations, um, etc. Right? Um, and this is the, the first part of the inhumanities panel. So what you're seeing um, is a woman in Palestine protesting, two photographs of Jews being rounded up in Warsaw, uh, Mississippi lynching from 1937, and prisoners being executed by uh, Chinese uh, soldiers. Um, it's certainly not the case that history was excluded. Now, this is a very complicated um, sequence because these, three, these two images were removed about halfway through the exhibition. Um, and I really don't have time to... I, I'm happy to answer that question. Um, there's, there's a very complicated narrative as to why that happened. Uh, but in this original conception, for a moment, I just want to dwell with that and what this implication is. Right? So that I'm going to show you the remaining walls of this small room uh, quickly. So this is the other side of the wall in terms of social protests. You have women protesting in Korea, um, uh, in Shanghai, etc. Uh, just before the inhumanities, you have a series of images of famine. Uh, on the other side, the social protest continues with this large picture of a black man. There were very tiny little labels, uh, so you weren't really meant to engage with labels, you were just supposed to be overwhelmed. So imagine that you're in MoMA, you're largely a white audience, and this is 1955, before Rosa Parks has sat down on the bus. Civil rights hasn't started. African Americans play an enormous part. He's not African American, he's South African. But if you're putting a picture of a Mississippi lynching in a room with a picture from South Africa in 1955, you're making some kind of statement, which is certainly not apolitical. So, and the wall opposite was a series of teenagers involved in their um, kind of fun and games. In other words, this room is constructing an argument with the young people of America saying, enough hanging around on beaches and stuff, 
Think about what you're looking at literally on the wall opposite, right? And you're building towards the United Nations. Um, so the thing I wanted to focus on is these two pictures are really strange. They're pictures of two toddlers behind chairs. What on earth are they doing in this room between the Warsaw Ghetto and lynching and social protest? The other thing that I want you to notice is this is a gap in the wall. It's the only gap that was instituted by the architects and Steichen in the entire exhibition. And although it's hard to see in this, if you look very carefully, what you're seeing through the gap is the central group of family images. So at this crucial point, he is making you stand between social process and the Warsaw Ghetto and reimagine what you're looking at as the ideal, so-called ideological <coughs> center of the exhibition. This is one of the ways in which the exhibition created a very complex structure of temporal and uh, reflective memory that you had to connect the exhibition up rather than just flow through it. Um, the whole of the Inhumanities Room, and the toddlers in particular, link us back to the second room of the exhibition, which is this. There was a central panel which was decorated by pictures of kids in distress behind uh, barriers or in acts of violence. It wasn't all a happy families kind of exhibition. And I'm just going to show you two examples of where this room connects with the room number seven. And keep an eye on that big, um, lovely picture of the family, the white family in the extreme right, which is Wayne Miller's family, in fact. So the toddler you are seeing, uh, the toddler you're seeing in room seven is the little toddler in the, that family is connected up. And the lynching image was connected to the picture you had already seen in room two of the girl tied. So um, what the archives have allowed me to do is precisely to go back and uh, to an actually a much more old-fashioned attitude to the family of man, which is just to actually read it and to read it room by room, picture by picture, and to begin to understand that actually much of what the criticism has been of the family of man um, has actually missed most of the archive. And one of the things that interests me is that some of the people who have written against the family of man have also written against the archive. Alan Sekula would be the classic example. And I would beg to disagree on, I think, both levels, actually, on some levels. Thank you very much. <laughs>